Good morning, everyone. My name is Kevin Lagore, and welcome to another What's Up webcast uh, here at Skywatcher. We do this every Friday, 10 a.m. Pacific, right here at the Skywatcher USA YouTube channel. We cover everything from what's up in the nighttime sky to equipment to helpful tips and tricks, um, as well as uh, having a special guest on at the end of the month. And of course, it's the end of the month. I don't know where February went. Uh, but that's how it works. Um, so today we have Tom Fields joining us from uh, RSpec. He's the creator of RSpec, which is an awesome spectroscopy software that can be used for um, amateur astronomy as well as professional work, I'm sure. Um, but Tom's going to give us a deep dive into all of that, and I'm going to go ahead and bring Tom on. So, hey, Tom, thanks for joining us this morning. Hey, Kevin, I'm happy to be here. Thanks for welcoming me. Um, so I started off the same way. Um, with everybody and kind of ask how you got started in astronomy? That's a good question. I, I date myself when I say it was uh, Shoemaker Levy 9 back in the early 90s. And I just, you know, wanted to see it. So I asked around and found a telescope vendor and got some really good advice and actually saw it in my own telescope. So that was my start. Now, living in Colorado, I had a lot of really good clear skies too. So life was easy. Now I'm in Seattle. It's a little more cloudy. It's a fool's game to try and plan any observing in Seattle. Sure. Um, so you've got a really unique thing. I mean, we've talked to a lot of people from various uh, astronomy companies and, and all kinds of different people, but you were your niche, for lack of a better term, is quite unique. And I've seen what you've done um, at shows and what you offer, but uh, and we kind of touched on it a couple weeks ago, a couple months ago probably at this point, where we had an episode talking about what you can do scientifically with your telescope. And one of the things we talked about was your software and what you offer. So um, I didn't know if you could kind of tell people kind of what it is that you do and how they can get involved in this type of work. Sure. Uh, my, my background was I did a little visual imaging, not a lot. Uh, it never really captured my attention. I, you know, captured some images and processed them, but, I wanted to do some science. Uh, and in talking to my friends who were astroimagers, you know, after their, you know, 10th or 20th image of M42, a lot of people are looking for something more scientific to do. So uh, what I did was I, I have this grading here. You can see it's just an inch and a quarter grading. It's called a star analyzer. And unlike a lot of glass that we buy, this is pretty inexpensive. It's, you know, about 200 bucks. And you just screw it onto your camera and it splits the light like a prism and turns it into one of these rainbow spectra that we'll look at in a, in a few minutes maybe. But this is how they say 80, 90% of the research that professionals do is done using these rainbow-like spectra. And so the thing about it is it's the kind of thing that we amateurs can do. And uh, it surprised me when I discovered it was doable. And the reason I mentioned I wasn't much of an astroimager is because if this required a lot of skill, <laughs> I wouldn't be able to do it. I'm just not a hardware guy. You know, I'm, I'm not a big observer. Uh, but first night out, people capture spectra and do science. So uh, that's, you know, in a nutshell what it's about. Let me share my screen for just a second and show one of those spectra. So the audience uh, sees what we're talking about here. This is a rainbow. And those gaps 
are unique depending on the particular material we're looking at and some other things. And so when we split the starlight, we're able to actually study and learn about the composition of the stars. Uh, and it's, you know, I don't have a PhD in astrophysics. You know, I, I didn't do a lot of reading in science, uh, you know, in college even. I was a software guy. But what I found is that it didn't take a PhD or an undergraduate degree in physics or astronomy to do some really exciting stuff. My biggest challenge actually is, is just convincing our peers that this is something they could do and that it would be fun. Yeah, and I think that's one of the big things that we tried to kind of bring to light in that past episode was there are a lot of people out there who kind of went through what you did where, yeah, I shot the same picture and I've done this and blah, 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 blah. And I have a good friend of mine who runs a remote observatory. And you would think that a lot of the clientele going into something like that is out in a dark sky to take pretty pictures. Everyone in there is doing science, whether it's photometry or spectra, mm -hmm. but it's it's easier than ever now with these modern pieces of, you know, these cameras and all this hardware that it's easier than ever to start actually doing research with your telescope and your software and what you've created is kind of the, a big puzzle piece in making that even easier to, because I mean, it's like, okay, great, I shot the spectrum with a little gradient that breaks the light apart how do i know what i'm doing with it and that's kind of where you come in yeah at that point sure in fact just to uh to give you an idea of and i'd love to talk about the software it's sure it's it's easy to use which is really an important piece what i wanted to just show for a second so people could see it up close that's what this grading is it's it's just an inch and a quarter fits in a filter wheel and you know, I think a lot of us, when we, we think about doing something new, I know because I'm a knuckle-dragging programmer, I live not for configuring hardware. I break things. I'm a software guy. And so to use a grading like this, <clears throat> before we look at the software, I just want to show you it mounts on almost any device you've got. I mean, you can even put it right on the nose piece of a DSLR, or you can... If you're just using your DSLR on a telescope, then you can thread it in. We have this little adapter that goes right into your T-ring, and then the grating goes right there, and then you just put this on your telescope like always. It, it's not all that finicky like focus or anything like that. It, everything's all approximate. And the reason I mention that, as I said, is it's the kind of thing that you know people uh, people worry for good reason that, oh, is this something that it's going to take a lot of work to to really make happen, uh, and it's it's easy. So in terms of what you can do once you have a grading on your telescope, I mean, here's a schematic of what happens. And you've got your starlight, you've got the grading, and then you've got your sensor. And say so there's the star, and there's, there's your rainbow, your spectrum, we call it. You can have a color camera, it can be a mono camera, it can be a lot of people do great work with video cameras, like the ZWO cameras, or you know, all the way up to, you know, fancy S big cameras with filter wheels or the ZWO filter wheel. So that's the kind of spectrum that you can get. And uh, there are gaps in that spectrum, which are much more easily seen with software. And so, yeah, let me show you that. Uh, let me figure out how to get that up on the screen. There we go. So this is, this is my software. This is just a preview screen. This is the image that came from your camera 
or uh, again, it could be a live video stream that you're looking at here. And you can see just like we saw on the previous slide, there's the star and there's the spectrum rainbow. You can see actually a little gap right there and maybe some gaps over there. So the process is really just bracketing in the region you want to look at. And then what the software does over here is it looks at the intensity in each column and just plots that here. So this is intensity. So that's why this peak is so high. In fact, I wanted to uh, go like that. This peak is so high because the star is so bright. And then this area over here shows up over here. So for example, that big dip right there is that gap there. So now we've converted this visual image into a graph. Now we can do science. I mean, that's really, I've just shown you what it's all about is convert mm -hmm. this to that, and then we have those dips there. So the real issue then becomes, well, so what? <laughs> you know, so I've got dips. What do they mean? Why, what, why are they there? Well, and this is where, again, it, knowing what to expect, we've got a great forum where people walk others through this kind of thing. Knowing what to expect is very helpful. This is Vega, by the way. I shot this on a C8 in my backyard with a webcam. So this is a video. You know, I think the other thing, you know, to be quite frank, I was I was a contributing editor at Sky and Telescope for about 10 years. And uh, it just ended last year. And, you know, when you when you look in the back of those magazines, Kevin, and you see these gorgeous, you know, just nebula that are, you know, so filled with color and beautiful detail gradients. But then you look at the fine print and it's 40 hours of exposure time. Yep. You know? mm -hmm. And I don't get 40 hours of time in a summer sometimes here in Seattle because it's so cloudy. And the reason I mention that is because with spectroscopy, we're not looking for all that fine gradient. You know, we don't do much post-processing. There's, it's really, if you can do an image like this with a, what a, tenth of a second video exposure, then that's evidence. It, again, it's the kind of thing you can do right out of the box. So mm -hmm. what these dips are built into the software is a library where we can say, show me where, see each element has gaps or dips in different locations. And I can say in the software, show me where the hydrogen on the star would be causing absorption. And here we can see we match that dip there that one, that one, one over here. So what we've just done is taken an image through a star analyzer grading and then in the RSpec software detected features in that star that we've now discovered hydrogen on the star for ourselves with a backyard mm -hmm. telescope. And it doesn't have to be a big telescope. Uh, you know, you're, you're, what is it? The Evo star, the 80 even. Uh, we have people doing spectra with you know three, four inch telescopes. A hundred's a little bit better of a size, but it doesn't take a lot of aperture. So that's that's how we capture spectra. There's there's I mean a ton to the software, but there's not a lot else to show in order to understand what we're doing. This is actually a video from that first night out that I had here in Seattle. You can see the image here is jumping around a little bit. So over on the right, you know our graph is jumping around a little bit. That's okay. Mm -hmm. This is right here in Seattle, about three miles from Pike Place Market. So that's what the software can do in terms of uh, uh, capturing the data. And we can look at examples of the kinds of things that 
um, you know, we look at, you know, with just some PowerPoint slides as we go forward. That, well, how do you feel about that explanation? Does that make it pretty clear, do you think, Kevin? Yeah, I think a lot of people can understand that. I know most of the people who watch um, this series, if you will, um, have their own telescope, their imagers and stuff like that. So, but I feel like that breaks it down into kind of what exactly we're covering today. Um, so obviously a lot of this is, we're basically doing this on a very basic level, but that's basically what a lot of professional observatories are doing nowadays is spectra work. Um, is there, for someone who'd want to get into this, obviously you were saying you could do that with a three to four inch refractor. Um, are there benefits to having a larger instrument when you're doing spectra? Yeah, of, of, you know, you get you get more photons. But it's interesting, you know, because we all have aperture envy, you know, and for good reason, mm -hmm. aperture is king. But beyond a certain size, an inexpensive grading like this star analyzer grading no longer works. So you get up to, you know, 11 inch, 14 inch and above telescopes. Uh, the SLU telescope, people are putting a couple of these on their telescopes right now. Uh, later this year, they may make that available. So aperture is nice. But aperture is not required. I think that the difference I mentioned it a moment ago, but I didn't really uh, spell it out. And that is when we're doing visual imaging, in order to get those beautiful gradients where we can see dust clouds and things and galaxies, we need a lot of very fine resolution. Whereas with this, we're just looking for dips. Sure, mm -hmm. bigger aperture means the better signal to noise ratio, deeper objects. But uh, it's amazing what can be done with Literally, we have people who use just a DSLR on a tracking tripod, but or you know on a tracking mount. But tracking, really, you know, the kind of uh, tracking that you all do, that most of us do these days for our observing, uh, makes it a lot easier. But the so I guess the advantage. Oh, I'm sorry. Um, go ahead. I didn't mean to cut you off there. I guess the advantage of all this uh, here is it basically uh, you're able to dip your toe into doing science with it. And obviously I've seen other people who've taken this to the next level where they've got bigger telescope. They've got maybe, a um, a, a gradient that has more line. I don't know if you can kind of explain the advantages because there are different gradients out there that basically have more lines, which I guess break up. It's a higher resolution gradient, but that requires more aperture, I'm assuming. Yes, um, it does, because the more you spread the light out, the dimmer it gets, right? Because you only mm -hmm. have so many photons to work with. So uh, in order to image uh, extended objects or to do lots of long exposures, then we add a slit. And the thing about adding a slit is that um, it's not cheap, unfortunately. Uh, because a slit spectrometer, I was just looking for a place to show you that. Um, a slit spectrometer is going to cost, you know, do it yourself. You can do it for $500 to $1,000. But typically off the shelf, it's going to be about $2,000 to get started. And that's not something that, you know, most of us are interested in doing. It's just, you know, it's too much money for a yeah. start. I mean, I think what happens is the barrier to entry is so low that a lot of people pick up a star analyzer and enjoy it. And then they, they go, hey, this is good. I, I learned how to do what I want to do with this. Because there's a lot to imagine with a slit device, you've got like a 10 micron slit. You've got to find your target and then track on it. So yep. there's there's a lot of skill involved in that. And, and as I said, I was looking for, uh, I had a slide here. I thought I had my slides all categorized here. Um, but 
in order to step up to a slit device, oh, here, here it is. So let's just look at that. So there's some examples of, let's come back to that, uh, examples of the higher end devices. These are both out of France. Shelliac, uh, in both cases, is the manufacturer. You can see the pricing gets a pretty, pretty high pretty quickly. Um, but, but these definitely aren't necessary for doing the kinds of observing we do. Uh, just to give you an example of the kind of thing, very simple imaging that, that uh, amateurs do. Um, here is, uh, there it is. There's a wide field DSLR view, just to give you a sense for what you see. I mean, we've got our stars. Of course, your field of view in a telescope is going to be much lower than this. But there you can see some absorption gaps and some emission features. Uh, sometimes stars glow. And what I found for myself, and for, for uh, the audience, for those of you who are already astroimagers, if you can remember back to that first image you captured of the moon, and just how gorgeous it was. You know, looking back now, it was probably out of focus. It was probably overexposed. But that was the most gorgeous image you'd ever captured or seen. Certainly the first one you captured. But I think the same thing that goes on with spectroscopy is when we own the data, when it's data we've captured ourselves, it becomes more meaningful to us. And that translates into our going and doing a little reading online. I'm, I don't study. I mean, I'm not a great studier. I, you know, I went to college and, and, you know, I've studied over the years the kinds of objects we're observing. But once it's your data, then it gets really interesting. I tried photometry. Honestly, I tried it and it just really didn't capture my attention. Now, the AVSO now has jumped big into spectroscopy. Uh, Arnie, uh, uh, Stella's predecessor, and, you know, she's now moved on, but um, they both were professional astronomers and they uh, appreciated how important spectroscopy is to the field and in ways that the amateurs can contribute, which is, which is pretty exciting in itself that we can now contribute to professional research. This is a series of images just again to give people a sense for the differences between stars. So up here are type B stars and down here are type M stars. And so they're going from hot down to cool here. Look at the differences in those absorption features. You know, we've got these absorption features here that are darkest there on that type A star like Vega. And then we've got on these cool stars down here, these wide bands. And those are different because those stars are at different temperatures. And again, just a tiny bit of science. I'm telling you everything I know about the science, honestly. I'm not, I'm not pretending. Um, you may remember from, from school that the Bohr model has electrons in orbits and they jump between orbits. And when they jump, they can absorb energy. And different elements have different orbits and different electrons jumping. That's why we have different lines. And what happens is, for example, on these stars here, these relatively hot stars, when an electron jumps from two to four, it absorbs energy. And that's why we can see that gap there. But these cool stars aren't hot enough to pump those electrons up. So that's, that's all the subatomic and atomic physics that I know or that I care to know, to be honest. There's tons to be learned. And the great thing is that we can learn what we want when we want it. You know, 
You mentioned uh, outreach uh, when we were talking earlier, Kevin, before the meeting. Mm -hmm. I wanted to show you this. That's pretty cool. You know, we all do, and, and rightly so, we all do first quarter star parties, you know, and, and uh, you know, Albirio, our, our favorites, whatever they are. Um, this is a really colorful display that you can, again, you wouldn't want to do this in a dark sky site, but this kind of thing with the color, and remember that graph in my software that was moving because the scene was changing, that captures people's attention. And uh, it's, it's pretty cool to have these scientific discussions with people about, uh, about what they're seeing. I wanted to show you something cool here. This is a periodic table that shows that each element has different lines. That's really the key concept here, that hydrogen and helium, if you were to burn them and, or look at hydrogen and helium on a star, you'd see these different lines. So I think what's really cool about this stuff is, um, particularly as someone who does outreach, I do a lot of live imaging now, especially with COVID going on, where we set up a, a camera and we're already doing live astrophotography, but the ability to be able to switch a filter and go, you know, my idea, because I know I've been talking to you about this behind the scenes, is when I'm actually doing live imaging, the plan would be, oh, hey, we're looking at this star or, you know, we're looking at the ring nebula because you could do it on a planetary as well. And right then and there to be like, now we're going to take a look at what it's made of and actually switch a filter, put this little guy in there, the star analyzer 100, and then flip over to the software here. And then to take it from, oh, okay, that's a cool distant object to this is how we know X, Y, and Z about this object. You're the thing that I was really hoping to cover when you were kind of make the point having you on is people are interested in things in the nighttime sky constantly, but a lot of that and even the science can appear sometimes unobtainable or beyond their understanding and what you do good with here is it shows you for very minimal effort that science is now completely obtainable but also really easy to understand kind of fun to just you know hey what's this star look like hey what's that star look like or blah 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 and it's like oh cool this one doesn't peak in this wavelength and da da da, da. and you're starting to do chemistry and it makes that not just some I have to have an, a, a degree and some far off mountaintop. It's now right in front of me, and oh, this is really neat. And even with some of your stuff, if you go onto your, um, if you go onto Tom's website, you don't even need to use a telescope for some of this because you've got some cool tools to just do this in a classroom um, if you wanted to. Yeah, for teachers out there, you know, with the new science standards, astronomy is everywhere in all grades, and for presenting spectra, uh, there's really no better tool than something like this. Let's just bring it up. Uh, let's see there. So this is a little tiny camera pointing at a gas tube, same software. And so what we've had is we've had uh, educators, for example, do this with gas tubes in their classroom and then go outside with a telescope and compare the gas tube spectra to a star spectrum. In fact, I coach a lot of students uh, who come to me, by lots, I mean, you know, a dozen a year, who want to do science project. They want to capture the spectra of stars. And it's really, it's a winning science project. 
uh, because it, it just blows people's minds, including the science fair judges, that you can capture an image like this and say something about the composition of a star. This was unheard of 20 years ago. Really just remarkable the changes we can make or we, that have been made. You know, the other kind of thing that has happened over the years, um, you know, when you're, when you're talking to the public uh, and maybe um, you're in a classroom, either way, if you look at the specter of Uranus and Neptune, there they are with the star analyzer grading. You have this, it's a mono spectrum. It doesn't matter. But of course, mono is a little more sensitive, a little more scientific, less intuitive to a newcomer. But when we look at that spectrum and look at those deep dips there, that's the methane on those planets. That's cool. I, it's really cool. I know. And so when we talk about ET, I mean, this, this really engages just about everybody. Everybody's curious, you know, is there life in the universe? How are we going to determine that? Well, we're going to use spectra and study the atmospheres of these distant planets. And if we discover something like methane, that could be some very strong evidence that there's life there or not. Uh, and so methane, not so much, because we don't expect to find life on Uranus and Neptune. But these kinds of uh, absorption features will be present. If, we, if somebody went, went out to, to uh, Uranus and Neptune and looked back at the Earth, they're going to see our oxygen. They're going to see our carbon dioxide. And oxygen doesn't last very long. Oxygen typically decomposes. So if you see oxygen on a planet, you have to start thinking, where did that oxygen come from? Did mm -hmm. something, was it a life form that synthesized it? Was it uh, some natural, non-organic process? So for me, it's been exciting to detect these kinds of things. There's a lot of other really interesting science that can be done. Uh, I mean, one that comes to mind is, uh, let's see if I can get it up here. You know, most of us I was are hoping you would get to this one. This is where I think it gets really, it's kind of crazy what you can do with this. I was hoping you were getting to get oh, to this good, one thanks. soon. So Doppler shift, just as a review, is the pitch change that things make or light makes when they're moving, right? So the, the classic example is uh, is a train coming through the station with this whistle going, you know, goes air, right? High mm -hmm. coming towards you, low moving away. Well, the same thing happens with light. So if we were going to look at a star and expect to see these three lines, this triplet, and instead we found them over here, shifted, we would know from Doppler shift, it's likely that object is moving away. That's what redshift is. And we can do that ourselves with our own telescopes. Uh, and to do that, again, we're gonna just look at a supernova I think the other, in addition to ET, supernovae really capture our imagination, uh, mm -hmm. it, just because they're they're just they're transient, they're extremely bright, you know those kinds of things. But uh, really briefly, this particular type of supernova, this one A, is when two stars are near each other and some gas from one ends up on the other, and you get a, a supernova. So here's what a guy in the UK did. People do this all the time. That's the other thing is this isn't just one or two guys on the mountaintop with their big telescopes and 20 years of imaging experience. This is, you know, JQ public knuckle draggers like myself. So this is uh, in M101, you can see the very bright star there. And there, I love this image. This isn't of this supernova, but it's of a type 1A and you can see it sort of has this circular spherical look to it. 
There's the spectrum. And David Strange captured this with just nine inches. He did some integrating. So now we're getting into a little bit deeper images, Kevin, uh, instead of live video. And here's the intensity graph he got. Again, that peak is from the star. And that gap there is that dip. Mm -hmm. So supernovae have their own fingerprints that are very different than just a plain star because there's so much going on. And in fact, it won't be a quiz on this, Kevin, not to worry. But this particular type of supernova, type 1A, has a very deep dip right here above 6,000. It's silicon. Mm -hmm. And that's what we're seeing here. We're seeing the absorption of silicon. And that's how, honestly, that's the, whether it's a newcomer, whether it's a high school student uh, where she's capturing her first spectrum ever, or whether it's a professional who is doing this with, you know, some orbiting telescope. I guess we ha actually now, in addition to saying orbiting telescope, Kevin, we have to say uh, L2 telescopes or yes. stationary telescopes that are really freaking far away. <laughs> so the exciting thing about this is that we can actually figure out how fast that supernova shell is expanding. And it's pretty simple math. I mean, we just looked at uh, down here that wavelength is 6150, so we'll just make a note of that. And then if we were to burn silicon on like beach sand, we would see it at that wavelength. I, I couldn't remember the Doppler shift formula when David sent me this the first mm -hmm. time, but it's Wikipedia is our friend, you know? So with a division and a multiplication and one subtraction, we can calculate the speed with which that supernova shell is coming towards us, that's blue shift with a backyard telescope. And like I said, not only backyard telescopes, but here's Adam Reese who won the Nobel prize a few years ago, actually what, 11 years ago now. So he and his team used supernovae as standard candles. Now, so somehow I don't think this was the instrument that he used, but in bang for buck, we do pretty well compared to his, you know, million million dollar telescopes on mountaintops we've got this little screw and grating so that's yeah, but to take that at a to like a, a high school or college level thing or even an outreach event like you could do if you knew the formula and you kind of knew the basis you could even if you knew there was a supernova or something like that up you could get all this prepped to where you could then execute that experiment in person yeah. again. And because we get asked all the time at outreach events, it's like, well, how do you know? How do we know this? How blah, 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 blah. And then it's like, okay, let's do the experiment right now. And to show them, you know, boom, 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 boom. There we go. Like, it's like, holy crap. We just did that in 10 minutes or less. And now, I mean, obviously it's not, it's rounded because we're using very off the shelf equipment. But the fact that we just did a rough duplication of that experiment right on the fly, I think that's pretty amazing. I agree completely. Um, again, supernova unfortunately aren't as frequent as, as our star parties are, but that's the kind of thing that is absolutely doable. And this is an example, you know, we all love and for good reason, Alberio, you know, it's our showpiece, our beloved, you know, double. And, this is again my software. This is a video made that shows Alberio A and B. You can see there's an absorption feature there and we've bracketed in just one of them here. Here the software on this graph is showing us that most of the energy is down here in the blue end 
right? Up here in the red end, there's just not that much uh, light. And mm -hmm. that's, this is one of the ways that we can look at star temperature. There's a more scientific way where we look at what lines are where and use models and things. But this is like a, like a Planck curve, similar to that. So, so Alberio B is a very hot star, much like, for example, a fire or a campfire or a candle. The blue light is the hotter light, right? And we know that. Sometimes we even talk about that when we're showing people Alberio. But let, let me play this video because this is live under the stars. We made a recording. Uh, so that's Alberio. And you can see it's jumping around a lot because our scene was changing. It's not very bright there. But in a moment, you'll see that uh, my mouse cursor comes over and switches stars. Now look at the difference in that curve. Now there's a lot more light in the red end because Alberio A is a much cooler star. This is definitely something you could do at a star party, Kevin. Uh, and it, it blows people's minds. I mean, frankly, just detecting hydrogen bomber and saying, hey, look, we've discovered hydrogen on the star. You just saw how we did it. it it's pretty incredible. People just can't believe that that kind of thing is possible. Yeah, that's, it's just making it that much more obtainable to know that it, I think that's the problem with a lot of science nowadays. And it's getting better, but the problem with a lot of it is um, people just don't think it's, you know, I'm not smart enough. It's, you know, whatever. It's not obtainable. And that's why I think stuff like this is really cool because it shows people, you know, especially educators or those in outreach that can have the possibility to share that or the equipment already to share it is it is doable and it's a lot easier than you think. Yeah, I wanted to name drop here. Uh, there's Neil deGrasse Tyson and some unknown guy. Uh, <laughs> this is my poster. He is a real he is as sweet and nice in person as he is on TV. I was I was not surprised, but I was delighted. And, you know, sometimes I, th I think when I show this picture, people think, oh, Tom's friends with Neil deGrasse Tyson. No, I stood out in the rain for three hours here in Seattle when he was giving a talk. And as he came out the side door to his limousine, I was there. I've done that three times. And I think that's the last time because it's beginning to feel a little creepy, <laughs> you know, and Frankly, I feel sometimes like I'm a pauper and the king is leaving the castle and I've just got my hands out, you know, you know, gold coin, sir, gold coin. Yeah. Because he's got 14 million Twitter followers. Mm -hmm. And so if he would just tweet out and, and he hasn't, he's got this poster on his wall. I mean, he told me he loves it. When I showed him this poster, uh, it was it was, you know, like almost midnight. He'd done he'd finished his meet and greets after his talk and he was like coming out. He was tired. And, and he, he said to uh, the, the dozen or so people who were out there, uh, you know, not tonight. And people kept saying, oh, no, Neil, come on over. And I had the poster out over a Jersey barrier. And so he sort of turned around. He looked at the poster and walked over and he, his eyes opened. He went, that's brilliant. That's brilliant. Why hasn't anybody done that before? And then his next line was, can I have one? It's like, no, I don't think so, Neil. No, of course, I have yeah. a poster with me. I gave it to him. Um, my next question to him, uh, coincidentally, the next day I was going, like you, Kevin, I do a lot of outreach. And for those of you in, who are watching this, who are doing outreach, thank you for that. It's, you know, it, it's fun, so there's no need to really be thanked for it. But it's one of the ways that we can just give back, you know, and, and make a difference in the world. And the next day I was going out to a school, uh, an underprivileged student school with my Lunt telescope, solar scope. And... You know, I said, hey, Dr. Tyson, uh, tomorrow I'm going out to an underprivileged school uh, with uh, 
with my, my solar hydrogen alpha telescope, do you want to come along? I hadn't even thought of it till I was talking with him. And he didn't at first say no. He sort of stood there. It felt like an eternity. It was probably four seconds. He was just sort of, he went, I am totally booked tomorrow. I just, you know, and it turns out he was because the following day I saw he was with the Seattle Seahawks all day talking physics. But the next, if he had said yes, the next question would have been, do you want to pick me up in your limousine or should I pick you up in my 20 year old Subaru, Dr. Tyson? <laughs> so, um, but this is, is uh, the kind of exciting thing that we can do. And this Elberio that I showed you here is a star party kind of event. I've got one other example, if I might here, um, that's, that's pretty cool. Let's see if I can find it here. It's slide 67. So let's just go like that and come there. Capturing the spectrum of a black hole. You know, black holes aren't emitting light, but that that uh, accretion disk where that matter is spiraling in is glowing. And so there's no reason, to, theoretically anyway, that we shouldn't be able to capture the spectrum. Now, this is also a stacked image. It's about 15 minutes of integration time. So not a lot. And it's done, actually, this one is done, believe it or not, like the camera was a modified security camera. Who would have thought? But there's a wide field view of uh, 3C273. Mm -hmm. uh, I, w I wouldn't be able to find it with my telescope uh, or on an image like this, but there's its spectrum. You can see there, Kevin, two little dots. They're hard to see, but they're right in there somewhere. So let's blow it up, and now we can see those two dots, and we can look at that graph. Now, when this guy, who was 24 or so years old in the 60s, looked at the graph like this, of 3C273. And this is, again, this is done on an amateur telescope. Back then in the 60s, that was probably on the biggest, most expensive telescope available. Mm -hmm. He looked at this and he went, I wonder what those, those peaks are. And he said, well, let me compare them to where hydrogen is. And this is where those hydrogen lines were that you saw in my, in my software. Mm -hmm. And he went, ah, they don't line up. That's science to disprove, you know, to prove they are hydrogen because they don't match what we know is hydrogen on Vega, mm -hmm. except they do match with an enormous redshift. And that redshift is from the cosmological expansion involving the Hubble constant for calculation. So now with a backyard telescope, we've detected light that's 2 billion years old. This is light from 2 billion light years away, which I mean, that's what we all love, I think, about this, is, is sort of expanding our minds to think about the enormous distances and times. The fact that that light still has information that we can pull out of it is what amazes me and what really saves science. It's why we can know so much about the stars. Mm -hmm. Light doesn't seem to age. Here is, just to show you this next image, there's Martin Schmidt. This is in the 60s, this is recently. You know, we all age as humans, right? People, uh, I've been accused of throwing him under the bus by talking about how much he's aged, but I'm just jealous. Look at his head of hair there. He's like doing really well at that age. So this is also the kind of thing you can do. Let me clear that slide. Uh, in fact, stop screen sharing. Uh, that's just some examples of the kinds of things that can be done, but it's easy. You know, I think my experience has been, I don't know how many of you have picked up new software in the last two or three years or five years. 
uh, you know, whether it's Pix Insight or, you know, maybe you've got Maxim DL or whatever it is. I'm not, I'm not a big fan of learning software. I've been programming for a long time, for decades. But learning software, there's always that learning curve. You know what I'm talking about, right, Kevin? Yeah, especially and, in imaging oh, like, softwares. It's, it's just endless. And, you know, but the, the reason I mention that is because I think things have changed. And, Kevin, you were mentioning, and, and uh, you know, this channel itself is a, is a good example that, that we're all beginning to recognize how much more effective video is. Mm -hmm. It's not cheap to make, you know, a good tutorial video uh, can can take for each minute of production can take two hours. It's, it's yeah. mind blowing to me, but videos are much easier to follow and uh, really make the learning curve of my software and, and, and you know, any product you were saying, Kevin, that uh, for Skywatcher support, when people have questions, sometimes you'll make a video and just post it or already have the video and just say, hey, go look at that. How's that work out for you? It's it's so much easier to have a video, and I know that's something we're trying to do more on now because, you know, we spend time writing up this whole, read this, read that, no one reads anything anymore, so they'd rather, and I'm a visual learner as well, so it's like, you know, go here, go here, go here, there, so. Yeah, yeah. and that's typically, in fact, uh, one of the things, uh, just to talk a little bit about learning of my software, one of the things that... Uh, that people often, uh, let's see where that screen is. Let's share that. So this is my site. I wanted to show two things. Because some of you may be going, oh, that's sort of interesting, but I don't really want to spend any money, but maybe I'll play with it for a while. There's a 30-day free trial of my software. And the reason I mention that is because there are sample data files. And in fact, I taught a workshop to the AVSO a few years ago, and it's on YouTube. So, so you're anybody watching this, whether it's live or whether it's you know months or years down the way, they can download the free software, and they can download that sample data and they can follow along on a second monitor ideally and actually follow the steps so that you see what's involved. Even if you don't own a telescope and never plan to have one, but or maybe you never plan to pick up a star analyzer, being able to play with the software can make a big difference. The other thing, I, the reason I came here actually was I just wanted to point out, these are all short, you know, two and three minute tutorial videos on my software. Each update that comes out has videos that are available. And so uh, they're a pleasure to make because uh, as you found, Kevin, once you've said it well on one video, you never have to say it again, right? Pretty much. That's another reason why we do this series is, you know, we talk about our products sometimes and the, the nitty gritty about them. And so if you need to go back, you can always check it. But that's the cool thing about your site as well as I was messing around with that when we were doing the science episode a few months ago. And it was really helpful to be like, OK, I go here, go here, go here. So, yeah, the RSpec software, I've, I've had it now. I actually went out and bought it um, is very easy to manipulate especially if you're an astrophotographer and you're used to stuff like PixInsight and photoshop and all that it's you know 10 minutes and it's like i got it so that's enough to start doing what you need to do i do need to get a, a star analyzer that's my next thing but um there were a couple questions on the the gradient um so do you i know they sell an inch and a quarter version there's not a two inch version out there is there there's there is but it's special order on uh, the manufacturer uh again because of course something that's two inches is a, has a lot more area four times as sure. much area. it's considerably more expensive uh but as it turns out um 
I mean, first of all, we have adapters that will adapt this uh, to two inch. And if you have a two inch uh, filter wheel or, or uh, setup, you probably have adapters already for smaller, uh, smaller gradings. And you lose a little light, of course. But uh, um, there, it, typically with an inch and a quarter grading, people do fine. It's not a big issue. It is, you know, in selecting the grading, there is a little bit of uh, arm waving that gets done in terms of determining which grading you need. And there is on our site a little calculator that talks about that. And I, I people, and even on the calculator where you enter your, you know, your focal ratio and your, your aperture and, you know, your seeing and stuff. And then it says, oh, here's the grading that you need for that camera. Um, yep. I, a lot of guys just, there's a link there that says, hey, you don't want to bother with this calculator. Just send me your stuff. Send me your equipment list of what you've got. And I'll tell you how to mount your grading and whether it's in a filter wheel or, you know, on, on a, the nose piece of a DSLR, it's all pretty simple. So no, there's yeah. no four inch grading or two inch grading. Thanks. Good question. I know if, if you get more advanced into it, and the, the other thing about it is you have to remember that when, obviously when we're doing astrophotography, you get big filters to go with a big sensor to get illumination. Well, we don't really care much about illumination when it comes to this, as long as the target is in the center of the view and I'm able to see my, what is it actually called when you actually see the star that there's an actual term of the. Yeah, so that's called the zero order. That's the, yeah. that's the star itself. So as long as you have your zero order in the frame and then the spectrum for this uh, R spec to actually grab onto, it doesn't matter um, at that. Obviously, if it's going to get more advanced and you're using a slit, then it's different. But um, at that point, all the light is going right to where you want it from the zero order. But yeah, there's not really any need for a two inch for the most part, because you're really just training that light to the a very specific portion of the sensor. Good point. Yes. Um, there are some questions coming. There's one in here, Florin. I don't think you can see an accretion disc through a telescope. No, you can't. And we're not looking for the accretion disc. We're looking for the light being emitted by the disc. Um, uh, unless you got a really big telescope, we'll see what, um, the James Webb can do, but, um, yeah, we're not looking when we're doing, uh, spectra work, we're not actually looking so much for the detail of an object. We're actually looking for the light and then, um, with Tom's software, the software analyzes the light and then we can see the spectrum from it. That's what we're trying to do. Um, I don't even know, correct me if I'm wrong, that you really, obviously you want to be somewhat in focus, but it doesn't need to be like dead on in focus either. Actually, um, it turns out the focus on a grading is a little different than standard focus. Uh, if we focus perfectly on the star, we'll get a spectrum, but there can be a little fine tuning and, and uh, that's easy to do. Um, I mean, typically what guys do who, if they have a video camera, they just run it live into my software or sharp mm -hmm. cap, doesn't matter. But uh, if they've got a, you know, cooled fits camera, they just continue to use their current camera control software. Mm -hmm. And then they can experiment, you know, bracket focusing until they see the deepest dips in the, uh, in the spectrum profile, the graph in my software. So, uh, yeah, but it's, it's not all that hard to do. Um, one question that's floating around, are there any uh, specific types of telescopes or specific parameters, uh, for example, F ratio, um, focal length uh, that are especially suited for spectroscopy? Uh, good. That's an excellent question. Um, uh, we can talk about what's not suited. If the telescope's too fast 
like faster than you know f4 or f4 and a half it's there's just too much going on with the light being bent to uh to really um to be effective uh same thing with a super large aperture telescope which for amateurs is like 11 or 14 or even bigger the star starts getting bigger and bigger on you know the full width half maximum of the star and if since we don't have a slit on this device um that's what adds the, the one or two thousand dollars is that slit um since we don't have a slit the big star ends up lowering our resolution so typically mm -hmm. the sweet spot is like an eight or nine inch telescope but um, uh, people people use you know three four five six inch telescopes too eight inch of course the, the eight inch uh, uh, SCTs are very popular uh, in terms of type of telescope um, Dobbs are a challenge just I mean we're not doing super long exposures so you know field rotation and things like that really don't come into play but uh, you do need to be able to track pretty well for a short period of time you know whether it's a second or fifteen or seconds or thirty seconds. Uh, so tracking is important. Um, and then the other thing is you need low chromatic aberration. So uh, the Skywatcher telescopes all fall within that category, you know, of, of a really uh, well-engineered, well-manufactured product that doesn't have the kinds of aberrations because we're splitting the light by color. So if the telescope is handling different colors in different ways, that's going to corrupt our focus more than anything and, and really interfere. It's a good question. I'm glad you asked that. Um, I don't see any other questions floating around right now. Um, we are coming into the last 10 minutes. Uh, so if you guys don't have any more questions, uh, that's cool. If you do throw them out there before we let Tom get to his weekend. But, uh, um, if they want to, if you guys want to go check it out, what's the website? It's our spec. Yeah. I'll just, uh, I'll pop it up here. I've got it somewhere. Uh, but there is that 30 day trial. It's pretty cool. If you just go get it and mess with it, it gives you kind of an idea. That's what I did before that uh science episode that we did it was fun to just mess with it but if you end up liking it it's not that expensive to go get it and then you've got it um i think you can put it on multiple machines once you have the license code yeah. if i'm yeah, yeah. so, so Tom's of course, got that. it's 109 bucks kevin um and uh, as you know but just for the people watching so uh it's again i think that's one of the obstacles that that i experienced when i was thinking about doing this it was like even if i could handle a hardware, and even if I understood what I was doing, I, you know, I don't want to spend the money. But for mm -hmm. a couple hundred bucks, which is less than a good eyepiece, you know, this is the kind of thing that you can do. There's a site you can see it up there. There's a URL, and um, there is a contact form on the site. And uh, I'm happy to uh, answer any questions that people uh, may have. Um, it's you know, I uh, retired from my day job about five years ago. And uh, I was doing RSpec. I was doing two jobs at the same time. But uh, it's nice to have all my time devoted to RSpec. And I enjoy it. Uh, it's something which uh, brings me a, a lot of pleasure to be able to help people discover such an exciting field. And there's thousands and thousands of amateurs doing this kind of thing today. This is not, uh, a, it's, it's a narrow niche compared to visual imaging. But it's not some bleeding edge kind of thing. It's uh, the kind of thing that lots of people do. On your website, also, um, you can actually buy the hardware from Tom as well. He's got the star analyzers. There's adapters. Um, so it's all floating there. There's obviously two versions of the star analyzer. There's a 100 and the higher res 200, which I'll let. Uh, if you're interested in that, you can email Tom and he'll. Um, 
when I was trying to get information on it, Tom was very receptive about it, very quick to answer. So he's very on top of it if you've got questions. So it's if you're looking to get into it, this is the way to do it. I don't know that there's really any other easy way, easier way than this to do it anyway. So, um, but it's a really cool thing just to mess around with, especially if you've already got the system for it. A lot of us astrophotographers, it's like we've got a mount, we've got all the hard stuff figured out. So if you've got the gear and you want to try something a little bit different, um, especially if you've got the cameras and stuff floating around already, why not? It's just chucking a filter into the light path, essentially, and start experimenting with it. Yeah, in fact, what you said reminded me, you mentioned that, you know, a lot of us already have the equipment, and of course that's true. Um, the other thing that I discovered after I got into all this is that spectroscopy is a lot more immune to light pollution. Mm -hmm. So uh, what we found is a lot of astroimagers, um, you know, on weekends or on, on vacations, they'll go out to the club's dark sky site or to, you know, a, a star party. But around their home, if they've got a telescope in the city, as you saw from those examples I showed, that Vega, you can set it up. Urban light pollution doesn't get in the way. And it's a, for the same reason that I mentioned earlier, uh, Again, if you look at this background here, look at the, just the gradient and, you know, all the fine detail that's available and visible. Uh, we're not really interested in changes that are that small uh, when we're doing this kind of spectroscopy. Just is there a dip or not? Whether it's less deep or not? Yeah, that's more advanced science if we care to do it. But so it's easily done in a driveway or a backyard, which mm -hmm. really a lot of amateurs have just celebrated that because it it's given them the opportunity to do something while they're at home again. Sure. Well, I don't see any other questions out there. Tom, thank you so much for hanging out with us this morning. That was really cool. And I, I know it's a lot to take in at first, but it's when you start messing with it, it's, it can get addicting really quick because you just pointed at all kinds of stuff. It's like, Oh, look at that. Oh, look at that. Look at that. So, um, you guys have Tom's website, uh, again, um, he had the URL there. If you missed it, you can go back and check it out. Um, but uh, thank you very much for hanging out with us. The big thanks to Tom for hanging out with us this morning. Uh, if you have any questions, just go over to the RSpec website and email Tom. I'll be happy to help you out with anything. Um, other than that, have a good weekend, guys. Uh, clear skies. And Tom, thank you very much. And we will talk to you later. Thanks, Kevin. Great session. I appreciate it. All right. It. See you, everyone. Bye.